Hello. Whoa. A new character. Who's this? It's a deep voice man. <laughs> He's sort of the gruffer counterpart to the usual hoi goy. Uh-huh. Um, welcome to Got the Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual chemistry of a... Okay, this could be wrong, but a host of the Phoenix Force and a guy who is the descendant of a previous wielder of the Phoenix Force and is genetically authorized to wield a magic sword which contains a shard or like an echo of the Phoenix Force. Yeah, pretty And he much. makes his sword blue. Basically. I don't think... Which, so th- as this it is turns a- out, is a lot of sexual chemistry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's going to be a lot of unavoidable continuity talk in this episode. I don't Seriously. think at this point she is actually a Phoenix host. Right. She is just like right. a former Phoenix host slash like Phoenix host spawn. Right. She has lingering Phoenix in her, as most characters do, it seems. <laughs> does seem like that. We are, of course, kicking off a brand new miniseries on the work of Ed Brubaker, specifically the work he does after he starts working on probably his best-known book, Captain America, which he writes for, what, like eight years, basically? Yeah, pretty much. He writes it from, I think he starts in 2005 and goes to 2012 is my my rough guess. But yes, like eight to nine years. Right. And, uh, and, you know, lots of additional kind of like, like he did a Winter Soldier series for a while after that. He did the Marvel's project, which is kind of like Captain America adjacent. So, yeah, lots of lots of um, Captain America stuff, but, you know, lots of high profile uh, superhero stuff. And of course, one of the kind of second wave image pioneers, I would say, maybe more like third wave, but we'll get sure. into all that later. <laughs> sure. So, you know, obviously you are pretty familiar with Ed Brubaker. I, is it is it fair to say to call his Captain America run like a top five comics run for you? It seems like. Uh, you know what? That's a good question. I haven't gone back to it in a while. It was It was definitely a very formative one for me where you know, to go into it as someone who had been into a lot of like kind of superhero adjacent content for a long time, but not really read a lot of comics. It was crazy to be like, oh, they're like actually engaging with like what it would mean to be like a World War II veteran. (laughs) They're actually engaging with like, you know, the surveillance state of America. They like, he's got a gun. He kills people. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a gun. Yeah. I've sent you that classic like um, two pay or two panel like Hellboy exchange, where there's like a I panel so. of a monkey holding a gun, and then a reaction shot of Abe Sapien and Hellboy, and Hellboy is screaming, "Look out! That monkey's got a gun!" <laughs> Which who can I have deny? Seen that, yes. But but yeah, and like. I would definitely say that like the Bucky retcon, which is pretty much the first thing he does is like an all time great retcon and good idea for a retcon, um, which is not always easy to do as he subsequently goes on to demonstrate (laughs) with some of his X-Men retcons. 
Um, uh, yeah, it was, it was just like, I picked it up and it was like, I had not read very many, um, superhero comic books at that point. And so the juxtaposition of like, I didn't know superhero comics could be like this while also being like, but it's still captain America in so far as it's like, it's very dark. It's very gritty in a lot of ways, but then it's still ultimately about this guy who is like the best guy. And that's like his thing. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to kind of take stock and think if I would say it's still a, a top five for me, but it definitely was for a long time and definitely was like an important formative run for me. Right. And so at this time, I mean like, around like probably like 2007 right Mm -hmm. he's probably doing like six different marvel books probably yeah he's doing uh like a lot of big marvel books he's doing uncanny x-men which is what we're gonna talk about today (laughs) he's doing captain america Mm -hmm. he's doing daredevil Mm -hmm. he's doing iron fist Mm co-writing iron fist another one of your favorites yeah iron Um, fist is so good And then Criminal. Are we doing Iron Fist? We're not doing Iron Fist. We'll get to it. In our Matt Parker measure. Although, are we doing... Okay, hold on. Let me let me look into this here. It's not on our list, I will say. It's not on our list. Did I decide to leave it off for a reason? Is it just too long? No, it's not very long. It's like a one-episode joint. I do, like... I think a lot of people talk about that as like Matt Fraction's Iron Fist, especially because sure. it's with David Aha, who he subsequently does Hawkeye with. And there and is he also co-created that line of sparkling water. Right? <laughs> uh-huh. And there is like a lot of common DNA between mm-hmm. the two series. And I believe that he was writing most of the actual scripts for that book. So I think that was why I was like, I'm going to leave it off. We'll hit it. Maybe if we did a fraction series, we would hit it. Um, but I do feel like Brute Baker kind of like gets retroactively, like gets his name rubbed off of that book unfairly because I am also like, yeah, but like Matt Fraction was kind of like a nobody <laughs> at that point. And like that sure. book only exists because Ed Brute Baker is like, Iron Fist is really cool. And I like this like Matt Fraction guy. Let's like do, you know, let's do a Kung Fu book together. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just reading about the Captain America controversy in which the sign teabag the libs before they teabag you was a major point of <laughs> contention in, in the issue of Captain America. Oh, yeah, there's lots of good stuff like that. So beyond just like he worked on Captain America and it was like very successful critically and commercially, do you think that in the same vein of like, you know, I feel like my go-tos are like Jeff Johns, Jonathan Hickman in terms of like people who are sort of like architects of a sort of larger universe story. Like, do you think that he was sort of tapped in the same way for deadly Genesis because he could sort of like work in continuity in that way? Uh, I definitely think that he was sort of like a get where like the, like there's a headline of like Ed Brubaker is going to do X-Men because like I was looking at this and like even He's like, when the first issue of Deadly Genesis comes out, it's the same, it's like the last issue of Winter Soldier. And X Men is selling like double the number of issues a month that Captain America is, even though at that point he's not writing X Men yet. It's like that month is like an in between. So there's such a crazy like connective thread here where it's like, 
at this point, Joss Whedon has like just started Astonishing X-Men, which is like one of the big X-Men runs, which means that Grant Morrison has kind of just wrapped up all new X-Men. Uncanny X-Men has been like foundering for a little while uh, and like kind of doing nothing. So they were like, let's bring Chris Chris Claremont back. So Chris Claremont just came back and did like like 15 or 20 issues, something like that. So uh, but then like Brubaker came on right after him. But there's a one issue fill in between the two of them. But anyway, so all that to say, like, this isn't like, you know, super, I, I guess it is superstar creator on Uncanny X-Men, but like latter era Chris Claremont X-Men is not held in very high regard, even by people who are like completely obsessed with Chris Claremont. Um, right. So the fact that it's still selling over double the number of issues a month as his like Eisner winning, incredibly like acclaimed name making, star making Captain America run where he's just done this crazy retcon that people are still like wow, what a crazy and incredible retcon is like kind of telling about sort of the, just like the difference in profile between a Captain America book and an uncanny X-Men. So the idea of like this guy who is kind of like, you know, one of the stars, one of the A-listers at the company right now is going to come and do X-Men. Like, I think that's kind of a sales pitch in and of itself. The whole like deadly Genesis thing. So it's, it was hard for me to like really even figure out much about kind of the origins of this run because he just like doesn't talk about it (laughs) like he just doesn't ever talk about it it seems like um apparently uh in one of the like trade paperbacks that they put out there's like an interview like an in-house interview where like he has a conversation with like the x-men line editor or something where he obviously there he talks about it a bit more i think specifically what i saw referenced was that people were confused about the the, like team roster and he was like no it makes sense for these reasons in like the uncanny when he starts yeah basically (laughs) i was also not confused but just like okay it's it's a weird (laughs) collection of characters for sure um but in terms of like at the time people are more interested in talking to him about captain America because it's like this big deal or about daredevil because he's following Bendis where it was again, this huge deal or, or, you know, just, just all kinds of things. And then when he gets interviewed, like later in his career, when he's primarily doing image stuff, people like don't really ever ask him about X-Men specifically. If they ask Mm -hmm. him about something specific, it's usually captain America and it's, even then it's more so like you haven't done superhero comics in a while. Like what was it like when you were doing superhero comics? Right. The one sort of like thing that I read that I thought was kind of like maybe a veiled reference to this was that when he was talking about like starting criminal backup and this was like several years after he'd been out of superheroes at this point, he made a comment where he basically said, I wrote around 500 superhero comics um, and I was pretty much tapped out after 400. <laughs> and like, I haven't sure. crunched the numbers, but I was kind of like, you know, I I do think that he was initially kind of excited by the idea of doing X-Men, but I don't think the reception was like hugely positive. And even like his transition out, I read an interview with Matt Fraction who also like took over X-Men after him and they were, they co-wrote some issues together, but originally it was supposed to be like he was like Brubaker was going to write issues that they had plotted together and then Fraction was going to take over. But he like ended up tapping out early and he just sounded like he was like quite done with X-Men when he finished. So 
It's, right. Yeah. It's not something that he really talks about a lot. So it's hard to figure out what exact. I mean, I don't think there was a thought process per se beyond again, like one sure. of our most successful and popular creators is going to write one of our most popular and successful teams. I don't know that right. there was necessarily like a big picture plan beyond that. Right. Um, and I certainly never knew he worked on X-Men, I think because like, it's like during this time he has like three highly lauded books mm-hmm. and none of them are X-Men. Like he wins. I was just looking and he wins back to back Harvey's in 2006. He wins for Captain America. And then in 2007, he wins for Daredevil, which yeah. is just like you're kind of on fire at this point. And then yeah. he also wins the 2007 Eisner for best writer. But then like the listed credits are Daredevil, Captain America, criminal, <laughs> which feels <laughs> yeah. a little pointed. He he is writing in this kind of like whole stretch, like you said, a lot of books. And I would say X-Men is by far the least memorable of them. And the others are all kind of like top like three to Go five ahead. runs this like character has ever had or, you know, hugely successful and popular indie series. So I, it does. Yeah, it does kind of get overshadowed in that way. And then, like I said, like he's going up against uh, like Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men. He's going up like he or he's, he's following after Grant Morrison's new X-Men. So even within like the X-Men world, it's like this isn't the like buzz book that everybody's talking about, per se. Sure. And the one of the thing that we should mention, since we're sort of, you know, talking about his his early career at this point, he worked on Catwoman. He did famously uh, talked about uh, Darwin the, Cook uh, for his career. <laughs> the big cookie. Yeah. Um, and then also, which I didn't know, actually, he co-created Gotham Central. Yes. So this this was the other like, I think this is basically what gets him captain america is that he and greg Rucka did gotham central a book which is so good and i've been trying to figure out how we can like circuitously (laughs) talk about it because it is very much the work of like two creators but um yeah it's insanely good and it was like not a huge commercial success but it literally like it basically has been confirmed that they kept publishing it because the like executive staff of dc were like this is our favorite book. <laughs> and like we are buying this book, not buying this book, but like basically it was like, we, we really like this book and are very invested in it. So even though it's not like doing gangbusters, we're going to keep it going as long as we possibly can, because like we want to keep reading it. Right. So, and that was like, also he wrote Batman for a little bit as well when he was even like a, a bit earlier in his career um, possibly before he wrote Catwoman. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He, he really like wanders through some weird eras of some like really prominent properties where like he, he starts up Batman on Batman 600. Yeah. <laughs> he starts on Batman and then gets thrown into this like huge crossover, the Bruce Wayne murderer crossover, which is really good. And his run is is good um but like it it does get kind of sucked right into that kind of right off the bat and then like catwoman we've already kind of talked about everything about that where like she they they like rebooted it because they were so excited about it and you know changed some of their plans vis-a-vis that and then this like the x-men stuff um the like even the start of daredevil is like a fairly unique circumstance in sort of the comics world that we'll talk about uh, when we get to that one but 
yeah, he he did hit like a lot of really big properties really early, which is kind of funny because like it's not necessarily clear. Like I don't know how he got Batman basically. <laughs> <laughs> Cuz his stuff before that is so small time and like so indie um and it is a lot of like yeah, it's a lot of like independent black and white crime comics and and like that's pretty much it. And then he did a Prez one shot. <laughs> that's yeah. So that's how he at least gets involved with DC. It seems like is that Eric Shanower, who I don't know, but I assume, you know, I do. I do know him. What do I know him from? Age of bronze. Yeah, I, I might have like come across his stuff occasionally, but not. I don't know that I've ever like really read um any of his stuff sure but he is this cartoonist who then like i guess recommends or he worked with ed brubaker on something like a short story for like an anthology or something yeah on dark horse which is like a crime story also interestingly enough and then shanower like recommends him to vertigo and then he does this vertigo one shot and then and then, like a year later, he signs an exclusive contract with yeah. DC Comics, and so it, I guess like completely demented. <laughs> is it? It's like it is basically like a like we got a hot young rookie. Let's lock I, him yeah, up with I the extension. So. I mean, so I haven't put him on Batman. Yeah, I haven't read most of his early stuff. I think the earliest thing of this stuff that I have read is Scene of the Crime, um, which was like. You know, that was a popular book for sure and was like 1999 that that came out and kind of put him on radars. So it could very well be that that was maybe sort of the thing that really made them made them want to go all in on him. And it's good. I don't know if it's so good that I'm like, we need this guy writing Batman. <laughs> sure. But 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 again, Batman was in kind of like a weird transitional period where Chuck Dixon had been kind of like the architect of the Batman family for a long time and, and was sort of phasing himself out. And there wasn't necessarily like an obvious successor to just sort of like crown and be like, you're the Batman guy now. So taking a swing on like a young, potentially hot talent, especially in the, an era when there's like six different Batman titles is maybe not as like crazy a thing as it seems at first blush. Sure. And that's almost like the strategy that they use with a lot of like HBO shows, right? Sure. Chuck Dixon. I'll take your word for it. Chuck Dixon. Oh, right. Got it. Okay. (laughs) So, yeah. So that he was a DC guy for um, quite a while doing Batman and Batman family stuff. He did that series that I think I've mentioned before, Dead Enders, which is um, like a crazy and weird book (laughs) of like very short Wildcats run. And then that sort of takes him into his next sort of like level up, which is to do Sleeper, um, which is based on like it takes like a, a member of the Wildcats team and uses him to do like kind of a pretty classic like Brubaker style crime story. And I think that is what kind of levels him up from like hot young thing to, uh, you know, like like creator with some bona fides who it's like this this guy actually has what it takes. And like, let's start giving him some uh, some good stuff here. 
Sure. And this I'm seeing is a that crazy. <laughs> Are you reading, <laughs> reading about the arm wrestling, wrestling contest? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I will read verbatim from Wikipedia here, as we often do. In December 2003, in a publicity stunt conceived to help promote the first trade paperback of Sleeper, Brubaker organized an arm wrestling competition at Isotope Comics. If participants were able to beat Brubaker at arm wrestling, they were awarded free signed comic books. According to Brubaker, he wrestled around 40 to 50 people and won most of the time, losing to only eight or nine contestants. He kind of... He, he could have a wiry strength to him, certainly. Sure, I mean, he you have to also to be bear a, in mind that he's arm wrestling the kind of person who goes to, sure, like, a comic book release Arm event. wrestling comics nerds, sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Seeing him um, in this hat a lot, I will say. Yeah, he likes his hat, for sure. But, uh, but so, yeah, him. basically, as soon as he was out of his exclusive with DC, he went over to Marvel to write Captain America and, and was the with them for... Like yeah, eight years, and and then has gone independent since then for the past, I guess about ten years now, really. That he's been pretty much fully independent and uh, killing the game, you know. Sure, it is kind of weird that it's like they sign him to an exclusive contract for you know presumably three or four years mm-hmm. because he starts on Captain America in late two thousand four, mm-hmm. and it's like they don't. I, I guess they do do things with him. Like it's like he he writes Batman, he and he then he launches like in, Catwoman. Yeah, he's like on the ground floor of things, but like he never really like, after Batman like handles a big thing. And then at Marvel, it's like I know obviously like Captain America was a much bigger thing than mm-hmm. he had ever worked like done before. But like <laughs> to go from like you're doing a Wildcats spinoff spin-off <laughs> <laughs> which but like, that was like, a popular like that that book was like a pretty big deal um, sure i'll take your word for it but but it is like a, a big like a big deal in the way where it's like and can you believe he's doing this with like one of the wild cats <laughs> but right yeah it is it is kind of weird because he does batman and then leaves that kind of prematurely because basically because of like a corporate feud with with the editorial team um and then it's like he does dead enders which is like i said a weird and crazy book that i don't think most people have read it's, yeah sandman spinoff catwoman which i get like was a popular good book i guess that's maybe what he's talking about when he says like darwin cook saved my career is like you know, I took this crack at Batman, which is like it's perfectly good Batman comics, but maybe kind of like burned some bridges on the way out and then took some swings on some kind of offbeat projects that didn't really connect. And he's on this exclusive and has like kind of maybe soured some relationships with some of the decision makers. And he's sure, you know, there's a, there's a potentially bad trajectory for him here until like he teams up with Darwin Cook and you know, they, they make a bit of a splash with Catwoman, but sure. And, and all like all critically acclaimed stuff also like, yeah, sleeper and Gotham central both seem like it's like never really did much in sales, but was super acclaimed. Yeah. Those are, those are, um, classic, like real ones, no type books and like Gotham central, like Gotham central's fingerprints, especially are all over dark Knight and all over the Batman. Like that's a really influential comic for how kind of like not influential it was for, for a period. 
And just like you won't meet any any Batman fan who's ever read Gotham Central and isn't like completely obsessed with it. <laughs> right. But after all this, of course, he moves to the X-Men yes. to work on X-Men Deadly Genesis, which is, I mean, there's so much because it's like this is more or less a direct aftermath to House of M. Yes. Which is like a comics event in the same way that I would print off the Wikipedia article for Infinite <laughs> Crisis and read that and be like, just like, what is this? Yeah, I would often a, read about House of M and be like, what is this? There's so much, um, there's so much like stuff to to House of M, but yeah, it really is like very much situated. So it's it and it's like double weird because it's like yes, it's very situated in the aftermath of House of M. But it's also very much situated in the like between the lines of giant size X-Men number one, which is like where they debut kind of like the second iteration of the team and introduce not introduce. I guess most of these characters had appeared in various ways before, but they bring out the new team that has like Wolverine, Nightcrawler, Storm and Colossus who are four like, you know, iconic X-Men. And there were a few other people on that team, but those four are really kind of like the the headliners. So it's interacting with one book, which at that point was like 30 years old. And then also the most recent kind of like big summer event. And then it's also like retconning and also telling like its own story kind of. And yeah, what a, what a book I would describe um, all of the 18 issues that we read uh, (laughs) for this week as being you bastard core as in, you bastard! <laughs> yes, like the birthday boy sketch about the other about Star Wars. Yes, <laughs> there is one thing that I almost like just directly screenshotted and said to you that is like havoc being like you freaking bastard. Yeah, they uh, they yell you bastard a lot in this, <laughs> and after like the third time, I started reading a lot of the lines in the same way as like as in Star Wars, where it's like if you don't do this right now i'll blow your freaking head off you bastard (laughs) but it's like a lot of the lines just like (laughs) oh yeah like basically verbatim so that brought me a lot more enjoyment than i think i (laughs) might have otherwise gotten and like you f at sign dollar sign asterisk king bastard (laughs) yes yeah a lot of a lot of that kind of stuff which is like like, it's (laughs) I like I think of that as being so 90s and also like I feel like well I mean like maybe Psylocke is a different story Mm -hmm. um but like I feel like the age of like all women are like drawn like this and like have outfits like this and even characters who didn't have outfits like this will make themselves new clothes Rachel Mm, Summers well that's also kind of like an X-Men thing where there's sort of like a running joke about like Chris Claremont like once every three issues will have a female character's clothes just like get blown off her body (laughs) and like be covered by wisps of smoke or or what Mm. have you and then she'll have to like make herself new clothes um yeah lots of lots of weird stuff vis-a-vis women and nudity in X-Men history for sure. Sure. So that in some ways is like very much in keeping, but I do. Yeah, you're right. It is, it is like a weirdly nineties book. And even just like 
the fact that you have Mark Silvestri doing the covers for right. um, for Deadly Genesis, at least, where he is like one of those like 90s artists for X-Men specifically, like made his name drawing X-Men, um, does really like kind of situate it in the sort of like 90s chic of it all. Um, it, yeah, and just like I, I thought, I frequently thought of... Um, of Brian K. Vaughn's swamp thing as I was reading this, uh, that, sure. that most dreaded, uh, series to invoke. Um, not necessarily in a, like, this is almost as bad as swamp thing or, or anything like that type of way, but just in sort no. of like the, you know, it does, it does really have that sort of like mid early aughts edginess to it. Has like it. a certain it stink that, on it that it can't rid itself of. Yeah, and it like it's and it's not just the writing, like the the aesthetic of the art, the yeah. like the decompression of the story, like as I was like prepare like thinking about the plot summary, I was like we had like 18 issues and I'm going to be able to do the plot summary in like 20 seconds. <laughs> oh, really? Cuz the last like four issues I was like a billion things happen in this and I've completely lost the plot. Yeah, well Maybe it's just also like, like the scope and, and also, like, if you don't know what the Shi'ar are, if you don't know what the Emkron crystal is, if you don't know that much about the Phoenix Force, like, it does, like, all of a sudden in the end kind of be like, and, like, let me just do a big sweep of, like, a bunch <laughs> of X-Men continuity things and dump them into this bag here. <laughs> like, sure. But the Star Jammers are in it now, and, and I hope you right. know all their names. Oh, the Imperial Guard is here. All your favorite, like... <laughs> you know 50 most, 50th most recognizable <laughs> x-men adjacent characters it's mentor everyone loves mentor <laughs> the moment that really got me i don't think i'll be able to find it but there's a part where it's like basically basically verbatim professor x says like I haven't been able to communicate with Leandra since our marriage was annulled. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. There was, there is another like last page kind of like cliffhanger type moment that made me genuinely laugh out loud. And I was like, <laughs> I don't think this is supposed to be funny, but it's really funny. And I'm going to see if I can jog my memory and find it here. Sure. Well, I, you know, maybe I'll take a crack at this uh, plot synopsis because they are quite linked to each other, even though they are also linked to like, I guess a lot of other things within mm -hmm. like the cosmic X-Men continuity that I'm not really familiar with. But so Deadly Genesis, like you said, it's like it retcons, I guess, or, you know, sort of expands upon giant size X-Men, which is I didn't I forgot was called Second Genesis is mm -hmm. the name of that story. Yes. So, you know, there's a link there um, and it's the 30th anniversary also. And basically it's like they're so they're looking for Professor X, but then also there's like a secret that is revealed that during this during giant the events of Giant Size X-Men number one, when like the original X-Men are on Krakoa and he recruits this team to go and stop them, that there was or to go and save them, that there was actually this original team which was made up of mutants that Moira McTaggart was just like chilling with. <laughs> she, yeah, she was doing like an alternative education Xavier Institute. Sure. Which, you know, it didn't, it doesn't seem all that fleshed out, but 
basically no. Moira McTaggart's like sort of running her own little thing here and has mm-hmm. some mutants that they can use. Um, he like mind trains them, which is bad. We're meant to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, he I, like, I would have doesn't... preferred if that was more like tied into their deaths. If it was like they went in so confident, and then it was like, oh, it didn't actually work. <laughs> like right. the skills good. don't translate or whatever, and they just get. Or it's like my owned. body hasn't been trained. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, so there's there is two people who I. My understanding is like we don't see these characters like these characters are in like two issues and then we don't see them again until like 2020 when they get like resurrected. Oh, yeah, that's that's a whole other thing. The resurrection protocols. Yeah. Yes. There's, of course, Houseway uh, and and Petra, I believe, are the two that you are uh, specifically Petra, who is just Terra mostly. Yes. Um, To the point that I was like, isn't this a DC character? And had to like kind of think about it for a little bit. (laughs) Yes. I was like, oh, I know her, (laughs) but I don't. Um, And then this person called Sway, who I thought was cool um, and has like time based powers. But the main ones are Darwin who we all know Darwin from X-Men First Class. Mm-hmm. We talked about him last episode, how he dies instantly. <laughs> <laughs> Which is uh-huh. really funny. Um, and I think, you know, a very cool concept. Yeah, in, um, like in a vacuum, I would say he's like kind of the best idea in this run. Right. To this and point, like, at you least. Know, and I feel like it was around this time, like Zorn is like the whole Zorn thing is like around the same time, right? Yeah, like, or I feel like, like not too long before. Right. And I feel like that era is sort of defined by like having characters who it's like you would never be like an X-Man mm-hmm. because like your power is kind of useless, but is also like incredibly powerful in these specific situations. Like, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I guess this guy does have power, but like I'm thinking of like Chamber or is there a guy named like Husk? There are people both named those things. Yes. <laughs> I, you know, like I feel like just like weird, like weird powers that are like very powerful in certain situations, but mm-hmm. like don't necessarily have like a direct application to like you're in the danger room and you have to fight a sentinel um yeah i I feel like there are a lot of those in this period yeah i really associate that with like especially the kind of like grant morrison and like whole new x-men run because they introduced like the special class which is basically just like all the mutants with useless powers where it's like beak who like looks like a bird and that's it and glob herman who is like a translucent jello boy and like you know the there's like a brain in a jar (laughs) she's she's around she's got a name no girl that's her name yeah um and and i do think that in some ways people like kind of saw that and were just like oh yeah i guess like you can have some mutants who are just sort of like weird and it's kind of it's like a wild cards thing have you ever read wild cards yeah i like yeah the george r R. martin edited edited. anthology yeah in fact i think chris claremont writes one of the stories in the original anthology slash was like part of the the original game but anyways the idea of that is like you know this this like terrigen gas basically gets unleashed over earth and converts a bunch of people into wild cards and they are like 
stratified into three categories, which are aces, basically the people who have like real superpowers, deuces, the people who like had a power of some kind, but it's like functionally useless. And then jokers who basically are like disfigured or have powers, but are also like horribly disfigured or, or, you know, have, have some other negative consequence associated with it. And so the special class is like a lot, basically a bunch of jokers. And then people also just get more into kind of introducing like deuce type, um, characters and that carries on for a long time like when jason aaron wrote wolverine and the x-men um, right he made eye boy a really like central figure and his thing is just like he's got eyes all over his body <laughs> and he was just like in it a lot but also then like, dupe is in that a lot right yeah dupe dupe is around a fair bit yeah like dupe's, a little different. dupe's, dupe's the like Dupe is comic relief for sure. Yeah, he's like, it's like, I'm crazy, but I'm secretly really powerful. Uh, I don't even know if he's secretly really powerful. Is he not? Part of his thing is also just that, like, he speaks in, like, a language you have to use a translator to read. Um, In the silent issue of X-Force, he accidentally sucked the entire team into his body or mind via a popped pimple. (laughs) But like Mr. Sensitive, yeah, from Ecstatics is another classic example where sometimes like Aaron has like a flash forward issue where iBoy is like the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. and he's got like a million monitors around him because you can watch them all because he's got so many eyes. (laughs) But like most of it is like, yeah. These there's plenty of mutants out there whose power is just like that's nothing, right? Um. Anyways, <laughs> now that we finished talking about Darwin, uh-huh. the most important character of this <laughs> section of issues. Um. So you've got Darwin, and then the main one is Kid Vulcan, who later just becomes Vulcan. Mm-hmm. Um. Who is it, we later find out is the third Summers brother who is the son of, you know, Corsair, who I know, and whatever his wife's name is. <laughs> and basically just, like, she died, and then, like, he was, like, ripped from her womb mm-hmm. a la Caesar, uh, which, which he frequently a, compares himself to. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, Rome stuff, for sure. Insofar right. as there, I was thinking to myself as I, like, read through these, like, it's so wild to go to uh, like basically out of like Tilly Walden and Hobtown to a book that has no themes. <laughs> right. um, but in so far as this book can be said to like have themes or motifs, I would say that like the Caesar imagery and the Roman imagery is uh, it's kind of chief among them. Right. A lot of, you know, it's a, it's a book about empires and like, you know, a sort of cla- a more classical, like, battle for the throne kind mm-hmm. of concept yeah saga epic saga basically sure um and so he he like is raised in the shiar empire and then gets like thrown to earth basically <laughs> or what? yes he gets so he gets this yeah this part is a little <laughs> little unclear he's also gets like clone aging yeah he gets artificially aged up to like late adolescence slash like young adulthood and then i think he to be a slave yeah and then he gets sent to earth to be a slave on earth and then 
Moira McTaggart finds him because one of the Shi'ar helps him like unlock his power, which he uses to escape. Sure, but he has no memories also. Yeah. Um, which takes a while to come back. Anyways, so there's this team of people. They go to Krakoa. They get pwned. And yes. also, you know, Professor X reveals to Scott, Cyclops, that that Vulcan is his brother. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he... So they go to Krakoa. They all die. But they don't die. They, like... and Or, like, a lot of them don't die. They, like, end up underground on Krakoa. Mm-hmm. And then... Professor X like mind wipes everyone to forget that there was like this other team, this lost team who went to save them. And then also in a, in a crazy move, like mind alters people into thinking that Krakoa is like a living Island when it is in fact not, which I, I assume is, has later been retconned again. Right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Krakoa <laughs> is like, the the whole like um Jonathan Hickman X-Men thing was predicated on right. like Krakoa's back. <laughs> right. Um and so they and then like it's revealed that when he when Krakoa gets like thrown into space, that like he was there and then eventually gets broken out or breaks out himself and wants to get revenge against Professor X, so he like kills Banshee, he kidnaps I don't remember what happens in these books. <laughs> he kills Banshee. He kidnaps uh, Scott and Rachel. And, oh, yes, yes, yes. To, like, lure Professor X out. Basically, the point of it because all Professor is to, like... Professor is missing. Yeah. Uh, the point of it all is to, like, basically use psychic powers to, like, show the X-Men or, like, allow the X-Men to, like, live what he lived on Krakoa and like you know learn all of these secret truths to make them hate professor x basically right so and then and he succeeds <laughs> yeah he succeeds uh darwin is also revealed to be alive yeah darwin and- um darwin has converted himself into pure energy to survive we learn in an issue that has a yassified wolverine on the cover <laughs> um <laughs> Crazy looking Wolverine. Crazy um, looking and, Wolverine. And basically the upshot of all this is it ends with Vulcan going off into space and then Professor X, who has been demutified, but also has his legs working again. Mm-hmm. And um, wears a lot of like sheepskin bomber jackets. <laughs> he does. He really does. <laughs> um, and then Professor X gets like banished from the X-Men and Scott is like, I run the X-Men now. You got to get out of here. Yeah. And then, so that's Deadly Genesis. And then in Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire, Professor X gathers like a team to go after Vulcan and basically like, try and talk some sense into him. I think because he knows that Vulcan is going to like, it's like traveling to the Shi'ar yeah. so Empire Vulcan, to go crazy. Vulcan has learned... um some like further truths oh. about the Shi'ar emperor's like role in his parents or in his mother's death. Right. And, and his Vulcan own also, sort of like birth and enslavement. Yes. And I forgot to mention, he's also, I think has been like awakened and power and like empowered yeah. by house of M. Yes. Because house there's of like M's, a mutant. 
somehow uh, turned him into a quote-unquote Omega Plus mutant. <laughs> and everyone was Omega sawing when they saw that. Um, one of the like funnier things about so there was like the announcement that Jonathan Hickman was going to like write X-Men and everyone was like, oh, he's doing X-Men, blah, blah, blah. And then there was like this early, like not even leak per se, but someone was just like, Jonathan Hickman has like a 3000 word essay on what an Omega level mutant is and who is allowed to be one. And when you're allowed to say it, and people were like, oh, like <laughs> do it, do it. <laughs> and then I'm pretty sure he did then like, a lot of his books have like a lot of like infographics and like manifestos sure. in the backs of them. And I'm pretty sure the one about like, these are the specific like eight mutants who are Omega level mutants. This is what it means to be an Omega level mutant. No one else is an Omega level mutant. There are no Omega plus mutants, <laughs> which personally I support. Uh, yes. Yeah, sorry. I was just looking at that because that's very funny. Um, and so he assembles a team, which is Havoc, obviously Vulcan's brother, um, Polaris, who I guess has been like on the run for some reason. And like there's some link to Apocalypse, which I think was maybe related to the previous run. Yeah. She gets like new powers from Apocalypse. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, Warpath for no reason. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because, what, quote, what? no yeah. one hates me more than you. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the implication being, like, you understand Vulcan because you hate me like Vulcan I does. Guess. And also, like, everyone hates me right now. Yeah. Um, and then Nightcrawler and Rachel Summers. Who are the only two who are like, we're chill. <laughs> yeah. We're it's normal. all good, baby. <laughs> But then isn't Rachel Summers like also mad at him? And also, of course, as I knew but had to look up Rachel Summers. Please, Rachel Gray. Rachel Gray, nay Summers, uh, the child of an alternate future Scott and Jean. Although her like interactions with Scott seem to be like completely normal. And I thought that would be more of a thing where it's like, you're my dad, but not... That was more of a thing when she was introduced in like the eighties. Sure. Um, Oh, she's that old. Yeah, she's like the she's from Days of Future Past world. Sure. Um, And Jean Grey is just like dead at this point, right? Yeah. So Jean Grey dies at the end of uh, New X Men, and then stayed dead for quite a while. Second, I love love a fictional character biography section on Wikipedia with the subsection second death. <laughs> How can we not? Um, so, yeah, they go they they basically spend like eight issues chasing him through space <laughs> as he like blows up Shi'ar stuff. Um, yes, but also there there are like intense political machinations yeah. where it's like Leandra is the empress who I guess was ma- was engaged to Professor X at some point. Yes. I don't really want to hear about that. I don't okay. care. <laughs> um, she is like weak and the old emperor is in a coma. And then the old emperor also has a sister who is like imprisoned. And there's also a secret order who are like loyal to the old emperor, I guess, Deken, not to mm-hmm. be confused with, Wolverine too, uh, 
And then there's also the Imperial Guard, like you mentioned, who are mm-hmm. like the, the servants Guard. of the throne. Yeah, they're um, um they they were originally joke is maybe not the right way to put it, but they're like a legion I, of shoot superheroes pastiche. Right. That's what I was reading, and I was like, that's funny. It is funny. Um I like it at least. <laughs> and then also and, and also like I was surprised by how many of these are like new characters because mm-hmm. like it is kind of treated as like we're going back to the Shi'ar Empire, like, Look, digging into all this old lore. friend. Yeah, like, um, what's his Corvus. face? Corvus. Yeah, I was like, <clears throat> excuse me. I was like, this is surely somebody. And it's like, oh, no, first appearance on Kenny X-Men, like, 481. <laughs> right. And he, like, is like an anime guy, basically, is my... Oh, I, like, isn't he Cloud? <laughs> I think he is, like, Berserk or guts i believe is the character i'll try and find a picture for you but he is like very anime inspired it feels like well, he yeah, has the got giant, like a sword. giant sword that he weighs he around with one hair hand. yeah and also at the same time uh everyone in the book starts like having sex with each other yes <laughs> that's basically true vulcan and deathbird start uh hooking up yeah uh, rachel who how old is she supposed to be um she's like in her mid-20s i would say okay because i i was like in my reading she was like a teenager yeah she's um, definitely older than that um yeah i would i think i think she's supposed to be like in the like 24 to 26 range okay oh wow you're right that is like a direct like (laughs) (laughs) that is like a panel from from this i i saw that panel and was like that's like what cloud looks like but it is really more so what guts looks like yeah guts from the epic legendary long-running manga berserk uh and also, there's a little bit of, like, Tekken in him almost, mostly in, like, his crazy hair. Yeah. And well, I mean, all the Shi'ar kind of have hair like that. Sure. Right, right, right. Um, And then, so, Rachel and Corvus start hooking up because they have, like, some mind link because he has this Blade of the Phoenix. And so, it's, like, their, like, residual Phoenix energies are, like, mm-hmm. horny for each other. Well, they other. have, like, a mind meld thing where they're, like, right. now we're soulmates. Right. And then also Havoc and Polaris start getting together, which has happened. That's like been a thing before. Yeah, that's like from like the Stan Lee era. They were a thing. Right. So everyone's boning. Yeah, it gets pretty horny there for a bit. And then the last like four or five issues is just like everyone fire. (laughs) (laughs) And just like everyone's like shooting their giant guns. And, like, fighting each other. Saying, you bastard. Yeah. Saying, you bastard. Um, at one point, someone goes into a crystal. Yeah, so the Mkron crystal... <sighs> I oh, don't and even also know they where meet up with, with the Starjammers, who, as we all know, are, like, rebels who are led by Cyclops Havoc and Vulcan's father. Yes. Christopher Summers. Yeah. So the Mkron crystal is a thing from Chris Claremont's run originally, um, which is like there's some crazy thing where like his his big like claim to fame was seeding storylines that he would pay off like ten years later, mm-hmm. and there is a crazy thing where it first appears after like his first arc on X Men, but then isn't a thing 
until like a hundred issues later or something like that. And it like, it's like it crash lands to earth and, and it's just one page where it's like a streaking pink comet from the sky, like falls and crash lands near the school. And then a million years later, it's like, Hey, this thing, but yeah, it's like the nexus of all realities is what, uh, what it is often called. And it's like a multiversal, like transport gateway sometimes. And it has like all these cosmic powers that, like i mean they reference several times that it like has the power to like destroy the universe um etc it's basically like an infinity stone type beat yeah kind of it's like um it's there's something to it where it's either like a holdover from the previous universe like before the big bang or it like was like created at like you know when the big bang happened, like the M crown crystal was like the first thing that formed or something like that. Um, so yeah, it has like been a, been a recurring sort of X-Men like adjacent thing. Um, (laughs) and, And it like ties into Phoenix stuff as well, because there's like a storyline where it's like going to explode and destroy the Shi'ar or something. And Gene like uses the Phoenix power to like save it basically. Right. Yeah. It's, Um, it's one of those things. Sure. Um, and so professor X and Darwin, or Professor X gets like thrown into it by Vulcan. Yeah. Professor X gets thrown into it by Vulcan because he's meant to like basically be tortured and die. And then Darwin dives in and drags him out. Cause he can survive anything except a Sebastian Shaw blast. Um, and the process of going in gives him like, turns him back into a mutant somehow. <laughs> <laughs> right. And also Vulcan becomes emperor of the Shi'ar because he marries he marries Death bird yeah and then kills the old emperor just co- yeah. like it's like i mean the whole thing is just like i could kill the emperor but i won't because i love Deathbird. and then he's like ha i tricked you <laughs> i figured out a way where i'm allowed to kill you yes <laughs> right yeah he does and so that it's it's funny because it kicks off as a like it's time for like Ed Brubaker's big cosmic saga, which is also his like debut on X-Men, but it's really just like 12 issues of setup for war of Kings and realm of Kings, which is like a cosmic crossover unrelated to the X-Men that is written by other people. (laughs) He doesn't really have anything to do with where like Vulcan fights black bolt basically. Cool. It is cool. Um, There's a really good issue in that where, um, it's a, I guess it's technically like a half issue where um, it's like a gladiator origin story that takes place wherein like Vulcan has just conquered a planet and he sees a guy like 10 miles away with like an alien sniper rifle preparing to like shoot Vulcan in the head. Um, and he like pulls the trigger and he basically like spends the like time watching the bullet, like fly to them thinking about like basically how he became gladiator and why he's like loyal <laughs> to the like Shi'ar throne and you know, the like trials and travails that he went through to like earn his place as the like 
leader of the um of the imperial guard and how he's like tempted to let vulcan just like be killed by this bullet because no one no one knows that it's happening except him and like no one knows that he knows but then at the end he's basically just like but i'm like i'm gladiator and just like catches the bullet and then laser eyes the sniper like <laughs> on the other side of the planet and is like that's just my thing <laughs> it's a very that's, good story <laughs> that is good stuff um so yeah basically that's it right and then they sort of like we don't really get a resolution as to like what is next for them no so there there is um also written by someone else, a mini series that is like X-Men colon Emperor Vulcan, which continues the like Havoc, um, Polaris. <sighs> Who else stays again? It's someone completely Warpath and Is it Warpath Hepzibah that stays? The... No, no, they're, right, they're no. back on Earth. There's a, so there's, there's a... Because oh, Warpath's the now kind team? of horny for Hepzibah, yeah. The Starjammers team is Corvus and Rachel... Right. Havoc and Polaris, some guy <laughs> with a ponytail and a red eye. Uh, are you thinking of Chode? <laughs> <laughs> and a Starfield. Oh, oh, right, that guy. He's like the the one who talks all Shakespearean. Like, um, sure. I can't remember the, his name. He's one of the like classic Star Jammers, though. Sure, and then like the Killer Croc looking guy. That's Chode. Great. I mean, that's not really his name, though. Sure. Sure. Um, So, yeah, that's like the new Star Jammers team, I guess. Yeah. So they uh, feature in X-Men colon Emperor Vulcan, which kind of like, you know, chronicles their resistance to uh, to Vulcan. And there's like this other species that shows up. Also dies. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Corsair. Corsair also dies. Um, There's this like other alien species that shows up whose whole thing is to like genocide the Shi'ar. Um, and then it ends with like most of the star jammers being killed or arrested and <laughs> the rest of them like fleeing. And then they have like lots of stuff to do again in war of Kings, which is like its own whole separate thing. Great. Uh, now yeah. we're one hour in. <laughs> Finished the plot summary, which I'm glad only took 60 seconds. Uh-huh. Like Raza Longknife is that guy's name. Sure. Um, I didn't like this very much. I thought it was okay, actually. I'm making fun of it more now than I did while reading it. But, like, it's, it's ridiculous, for starters. I mean, like, yeah. jumping into any comic, like, this dense midstream, especially, like, X-Men, which I feel like is the master of this kind of thing is always going to be like, this is absurd and like makes no sense, but it felt like particularly powerful and just like very nineties in a way that I wasn't Mm -hmm. really ready for. Like even just like the way that women are drawn. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is so (laughs) nineties. How are they still doing this in like the mid two thousands? There is like, especially there's like one panel. I mean, there's lots of panels where I was like very classic, but there was one like really 
classic one where it's like they just like won a battle and it's like time for the party scene and the party scene is like <laughs> Hepzibah like doing a strip tease on a table basically while all the other star jammers are like nice <laughs> like yes. drinking beer it's like right. this is how you guys celebrate <laughs> right the treatment of women is certainly uh interesting to say the least although you know like there's characters i guess like deathbird who mm-hmm. also like has giant cleavage but does at least but like kills people <laughs> yes and and like you know has some level of control until she doesn't i guess mm-hmm. and then uh, you know the whole rachel summers thing i was just like blah yeah like you know i guess yeah. whatever that's like what x-men is i guess well i mean it's funny because like she is a character who in like Chris Claremont's like intended canon slash headcanon, it's like, and of course, as we all know, in the future, she becomes the president and is married to Kitty Pride. Sure. Um, and there's like, yeah, there's like all kinds of like subtext for her and Kitty Pride throughout the various like X-Men comics over the years, especially Excalibur, um, which they're both pretty like prominent in, but um yeah, no, I agree. Like it it wasn't as bad as I would I w- as I was worried it would be cuz I know this is like a pretty controversial run in terms of like its reception where some people are like it's really good, other people are like it's pretty bad and it's like sort of emblematic of the ways in which X-Men has basically been bad since like New X-Men and Astonishing X-Men wrapped up. Um But it wasn't as bad as I was worried it would be, especially when like I was able to sort of like settle back into it and just be like, right, this is like it is X-Men, which is sort of the ultimate like soap opera. And you, you kind of have to just like read it as a soap opera, especially when like, you know it's such a huge cast. Like there's so many characters and no one really like has a voice and it's really not about (laughs) any of the characters per se. It is very much just about like what's happening basically. Right. Um, Yeah. The thing, the thing about no one having a voice is very true. Like unless someone like gets an accent for mm -hmm. like one word bubble, then it's like, it's kind of hard to like discern anyone from anyone. Yeah. Even, Um, even someone like professor X who like usually even amongst, you know, the huge sprawling, like ensemble casts, it's like everyone knows like what, who professor X is and sort of like what he's about, even when it's a story where it's like, but he's actually also secretly kind of bad. It's like, yeah, but you still have the whole, like, you know, the like road to hell is paved with good intentions type beat from him and like sort of a clear and distinct voice which i just felt like he really didn't have a lot of this yeah and i guess it it is just like it's maybe just like impossible for this to be good is basically like how i felt about it and like it's it's funny because it's like at first i was like wait like they're shrinking and i guess you do kind of have to like focus on a certain set of characters within uh something like this but to be like oh there are what like six main x yeah there are six x-men more or less if you're gonna count like warpath as an Mm x-men um and then it's like but then it's like but still the cast is massive (laughs) like there must be like 50 named characters in this especially because like every time like 
he's basically like not able to introduce one character every time they meet someone new they meet like a new faction where there's like right eight more named characters and like three of them get like a lot of page time like there's never just like one character that is now <laughs> you know on the scene basically right. um and you know i have like read him like talk about in interviews and sort of like reflecting on leaving superhero comics behind where he basically says like i'm not very good at writing team books and i don't really like doing team books and like i think yeah it's again it's hard to like really know much about it because he just like has not really talked about this book it, for a lot of reasons like i don't think he really enjoyed the experience of working on it it's not one of his more memorable books etc cetera, etc cetera. but i feel like he was excited when he came on to this and then he kind of like started to realize that like writing a team just isn't really his like interest or his forte and you can almost sort of feel like like it does feel like he probably wrote like a really like big sort of like pitch of this whole series where he was like I want to do this like cosmic saga I want to you know I want to do this kind of like wild space story and tie in these sort of aspects of the X-Men kind of like mythos that don't necessarily get used as much um thinking like this will be a good avenue to like kind of play with some of the maybe some of the less known characters or you know blah 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 what have you and then he starts writing it and quickly is like there's so much like stuff i have to do that there's no time to spend with any of these characters but also like every single one of these stupid characters has to get like three pages per issue where they do something and so by the time he starts to get like kind of deep into it it is just so focused on like we need to get to kind of like the finish line of this sweeping grand epic that there are just like zero character moments at any point. Yeah. I mean, like, especially I feel like the like real short shrift characters are like Nightcrawler to some extent, uh, actually to a large extent. I mean, actually like most of the characters, yeah. it's like Nightcrawler doesn't really get anything. Warpath definitely doesn't get anything because, no. because he doesn't have like a romantic partner to <laughs> co- coincide with. Uh, Polaris gets like basically nothing except when she is like in a relationship with Havoc. And then it's like, also like Havoc gets like, this is your brother. And we like barely under, like we barely hear about that. And it's like, yeah, Corsair, like, this is your son that you thought was dead. And we get like basically nothing about that. It's like, especially pronounced to me, I think because the, the notion of like the third summer's brother was like a plot point that had been getting teased since like the nineties where there was like, cause you know, the whole, like a lot of the apocalypse stuff and Mr. Sinister stuff is tied to this like obsession with, um, like, the, the like summer's bloodline and the like Jean gray bloodline as well. And there's been lots of stories about how like Mr. Sinister basically conspired for like Scott and Jean to fall in love so that he could like mingle those two like genetic pathways basically. And that's why he's like obsessed with cable. And that's why he's also sometimes obsessed with Rachel and like, you know, all that stuff. And then there was like a story in the nineties where he talks about Scott's, brothers plural um and scott is like what do you mean i only have one brother and (laughs) sinister is basically like did i say brothers (laughs) i misspoke (laughs) um and is like very coy but then it sparked like 
yeah, like 10 years of people being like, there's a third Summers brother. Who's the third Summers brother? It's Havoc. It's Adam X the Extreme. It's like, you know, there were like all of these theories about like who was the third Summers brother and the writer who introduced it was like, I was planning to have it be Adam X the Extreme. <laughs> and then Chris Claremont, who <laughs> Chris Claremont was given the opportunity to basically like pick up X-Men from a point in time where he wanted to and be like, ignore everything that came after. You can basically like do whatever you want and write your own kind of like alternate canon um, for, for like your X-Men. And in that he was like, it's Gambit. Um, and there's like a funny quote from just uh, because Fabian. like he has similar powers. It, like he was a popular theory because uh, yeah, he had like these energy based powers that people were like, it's kind of similar and he's like tall and has brown hair and like, you know, kind of looks like Cyclops for that reason, I guess. And, and had his own sort of like mysterious past, you know, right. like orphan kid who was raised by the Teves guild. Um, so he was like kind of a popular, a popular pick and um, Claremont rolled with it. And then Fabian Nicisa, who like wrote the original sort of like hook of like, there's a third summer's brother was asked what he thought about that. And his response was, I ruined lots of Chris Claremont's stories. So he's more than welcome to ruin one of mine, which is like a weird sort of like, a both like double gracious burn. and insulting way to be like, I hate it, but like, whatever. Um, anyway, so it was like this big dangling thing and people were obsessed with like the third summer's brother. And then part of what makes deadly Genesis kind of like such an event. It's like on the cover of one of the issues. It's like the third summer's brother revealed. And like, that was kind of like, you know, what it, it, the hook of it. Yeah. Basically where it was like, it's Ed Brubaker and he's retconning giant size X-Men and he's going to resolve the third summer's brother, like plot point, even right. though it does like, it doesn't end up tying into anything to do with sinister. So it's like, how did he know anything <laughs> about that? Right. But anyway, so well, I think... And also, it, I don't know if you know this, but as of last year, it has now also been reckoned that Adam that X, Adam the, X Extreme the Extreme is also a Summer's Brother, yes. <laughs> is like, not a Summer's Brother, but is like the a genetic right, clone right. of yes. Deken and the Summer's mom, whatever her name is. Because yeah. that was Catherine supposed Summers. to be... The, the original plan for him was that he was going to be like the, the you know, space conceived child of those two. But then when they introduced Vulcan, it was like, well, obviously that's not what happened because she was pregnant with Vulcan and then murdered. So how, right. how can that doesn't have been? Quite add up. Yeah. Um, but, but so like, yeah, it was again, a similar thing where to me, it feels like he had this like plan where he was like, I'm going to introduce, like, I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up like the third summer's brother thing. And isn't there so much like kind of cool emotional fallout that we can cover here with like, you know, Scott is going to fight him in deadly Genesis. And then Havoc is going to chase him into outer space. And they're going to like, he's going to kill Corsair and like, you know, all these different things. But then again, it's like, but there was so much other stuff to do that in the end, he doesn't actually get to like pay off any of that emotional stuff. And it's kind of like, um, and I think like to be maybe like 
somewhere between fair and gracious to him. I think superhero comics are often guilty of this, where it's like the actual like emotional kind of punch of a story beat isn't necessarily always explored very well. They do sometimes kind of leave it to the fans to be like, you think about like kind of the implications of that and, right. and kind of like fill in the gaps for these, these sort of like emotional storytelling beats that we aren't actually really going to cover on the page. I think that serialized comics generally, and especially superhero comics are guilty of that quite often, especially because when they only come out once a month and there's so much room for fans to like read and reread every issue and discuss like these long running plot threads that might not get resolved for years and you know, all that kind of thing where there's this whole kind of like meta narrative that fills in some of those gaps for you. I think a lot of writers are, are used to having that to kind of shorthand things that you know, like an original graphic novel or even a serialized story using like original characters or just like in the more indie scene, they have to kind of carry those things through within the book itself. But yeah, like and like fan it's discourse like- kind of drives some of those story points. So to the extent where it's like, yeah, like I'm saying, like you don't even have to say like, man, crazy how Scott probably felt to learn that like this psychopath was the third summer's brother all along. It's like the fans are going to basically tell that story to themselves on like the CBR forums. (laughs) Right. And also I think that like with an an independent comic, you're less beholden to like the editorial need for the book to like maybe end up in a certain place and Mm have to devote page time to getting to certain places so like that there's you know you can do more with that but like i don't know this whole book is just like so like sagging under the weight of the con because like it does feel like he's like it would be cool if this happened but Mm -hmm. then like the ramifications of actually like putting that on the page there's like no time to (laughs) yeah and it's you know it's a case of where it's like you have like sort of like this unlimited well of things to draw on. And as a result, you just end up putting like way too many things in and like are then beholden to all those different things and can't possibly like do any one of them justice. Yeah, it is. It's just sort of like the, the flip side of the coin where I think we've talked about previously, like how, you know, the, the like, continuous like building on what has come before allows for superhero comics in some ways to tell really unique stories because they have like this kind of weight of history that gives them freight even when they have to tell the stories like pretty economically in some cases but it's like on the flip side if you don't leverage that effectively then what you have is like this like massive edifice of like you know story ideas and plot threads and implications and then it all just kind of like collapses on itself and it did it it just felt like it was kind of out of control for brew baker this is such like a weird point also to start like talking about someone's career where it's like yeah check out this like kind of weird run on this like you know, this book, which eclipses anyone who writes it at this point, basically in terms of how you talk about it and like is also itself at a weird point in its own history. But anyways, I, it like, to me, I could feel it even just in terms of things where like, there are a few times where Rachel is basically just like 
molecular telekinesis. I'm doing this. Or or like when Vulcan is like, or no, it's Emma, is like, I mind controlled them by letting my telepathy like ride the the radio the waves. waves. <laughs> yeah, the laser waves from from this sentinel that was scanning me, where I'm like, there <laughs> there are times where like expanding on like the implications of a character's powers is really interesting. And then there are times where you read it and you're like, this is just like the dumbest thing I've ever read in my life. And like the implications of it outside of this one scenario seem like they would be crazy, but I know it's never going to be talked about again. <laughs> right. And, and I felt like that happened a lot in this book. Yeah. And like molecular telekinesis, especially like you never really learn what it is and it like never seems to do anything that special. Mm-hmm. It's just like a yellow glow um and yeah and and like even even after it happens like immediately after you see it for the first time she's like it looks a lot cooler than it actually is it's <laughs> like okay i believe you yeah even even just a thing like i mean this is probably getting like straight up nitpicky but they have that thing with like they're they're like building their own like jump gate for their ship or or like charging their engine to be able to generate its own jump gate and it's like, okay, Polaris is blasting it with her magnet powers. That's like, makes sense. It's on track. Um, Havoc is blasting it with his like hand powers. Obviously that makes sense. It's visualized always. Uh, Corvus is like blasting it with energy from his sword. Sure. We've seen him do that before. And then like Rachel Summers is also blasting it with something, but I'm like, she doesn't blast anything. (laughs) Like what's she shooting out of her hands into this engine? Like, is she literally just feeding it, like, telekinetic power? And if so, like, how does that work? Is she just, like, pushing on it and it somehow uses that? Yeah, like, I mean, it's also, like, because this is a plot line which revolves heavily around members of the Summers family. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of characters where it's, like, my power is energy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is ultimately a little bit unsatisfying, especially for Vulcan where it's like his power is whatever it calls for at this given time. And he basically, he like is very Superman like in his appearance and mm-hmm. yeah, his, his powers are very vaguely defined, especially in deadly Genesis when he also has the powers of his like teammates, a thing which I feel like is not explained very well, where like it took me a long time to figure out why people were like seeing the ghosts and stuff like that before, before I was like, Oh, right. Because he's like, got the team's powers and sway could do that. Except wasn't she only supposed to be able to do that for like a very short time after those things happened. And like like, nightcrawlers seeing things. (laughs) How sway. Um, so so like that was very vague but then even afterwards that's like okay so obviously he's got his energy blasts and someone calls him like an energy manipulator so you know i guess he can redirect cyclops's eye beam a thing that felt like it should have been a lot cooler and was paced badly maybe by the artist who was responsible for uh, for that particular page didn't didn't hit it quite as hard as was intended but what have whatever um but th- but then yeah, I was like, what's his durability like? Because he seems like he can just kind of withstand anything. But then Polaris like breaks all his ribs, and he's like gonna die. <laughs> and it's like 
just just from kind they of do like, like getting beat squeezed. him up pretty easily once they like get their hands on him yeah which that was another thing where i was like okay like omega level mutant gets thrown around pretty pretty willy-nilly especially at this point but yeah it's like once darwin is out of him a does that like i guess they do later say like that took away his other powers but it's like but he's still an omega level mutant and he just like kind of gets pwned by like shadow cat running through him yeah like uh, ostensibly omega level mutant means like the upper limits of his ability to like blast and manipulate energy are unknown like yeah he is essentially omnipotent in that area and just like gets beat up it's funny um, one important thing that I want to talk about is the uh, image that I sent you <laughs> shortly after I started reading, which is in X-Men Deadly Genesis number one, Wolverine is called upon uh, to attend to some task and he emerges saying, what's the big rush? The Maple Leafs were down one in the second. I've got a lot of questions about this. Number one, is Wolverine a Maple Leafs fan? There's no way. He can't be, right? There's no way. And we then don't, we don't we don't know where he's. Hold on, I'm gonna do some research. You keep going. <laughs> so we do we do know that he's from Alberta, but I don't know sure. if we know that at this point. I think at this point, all we still know is that he is Canadian. So this that actually maybe helps kind of answer some of those questions if we don't know well, exactly I, how old he is. Because if this came out after Wolverine Origins, it's like this guy. The, number one, this guy has no memory of his life until like the 80s. So and and not even like the 80s, 80s. It's like sliding time scale. So realistically, in terms of like when it would have been at this point, it's like more like the 90s. So why would he have any specific affinity for hockey that wasn't picked up kind of like after, after that fact. point, at which point he would have just been like a normal American culture type guy. So you would assume he would be like a Rangers or an Islanders <laughs> fan. Um, but then Sabres if it had come out after, he's like so old. He's born in like the like like 1820s or something like that or possibly even earlier. So it's like. When does he first encounter hockey then <laughs> at that point? Because he also fights in the American Civil War. So like at what point does he go over to America? Presumably he's not like keeping tabs on like the original six teams or anything like that. Like when does he get into hockey? Right. And surely. Okay. I th- I think a it's very clear that he Okay, I'll first thing. <laughs> the maybe he maybe he's rooting against the Maple Leafs and he's rooting for the team playing the Maple Leafs right. and then like, being he's down like they're one. down one. I can't wait to see them like lose this game. <laughs> right. Two, I will say he he's clearly not from Toronto. <laughs> like that's uh, yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. I don't I can't I don't know how you could possibly have sort of like believed or insinuated or what have you at any point that he was from Toronto, even before his like origin was known. It's just like, no, that guy has like never lived in a city with a population of more than like whatever the population of Rochester, New York is. Right. Although I guess he did move to San Francisco at one point. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm, uh, maybe I'm doing some conflation with, um, 
what you call it, uh, the like origins movie because he did fight for Canada in both world wars. Oh, good for him. The other thing, like the NHL, the original six teams, I just, I don't know why he wouldn't be a Canadians fan, I guess. If you, if he is like from, right. That was what I kind of thought too. Unless Where I was you like, know, maybe I, he it spent would have some time to be Flames, Toronto. Oilers, or Canadians. Like I just can't, <laughs> or or Rangers. Like I can't make sense of basically like any other team. Well, I mean, like the the argument against is that the F- Oilers and Flames weren't around until like right. And I'm like, does he does he even know that he's from Alberta? Sure, which I don't think he would. Surely not. <laughs> Yeah, the Oilers and Flames weren't around until, like, the early 70s. So, At yeah. which time, I have to assume he wasn't following sports very closely. <laughs> sure. Um, so, yes, I think you're right that he, regardless of who he was a fan of, he would. it's least likely, I would say, of the options of, like, Canadians, Leafs, one of the Alberta teams... Or Rangers, or like some New York team, whether that's the Sabres or whoever, he it's least likely that he would be a Maple Leafs fan. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what the heck? What's the deal? Should have said the Raptors. <laughs> <laughs> the Raptors are down one in the second. <laughs> I love Barnani. I don't know why that's Wolverine's voice. Hey, bub. He's going to be the next Dirk. But I also am not sure if Dirk's really... I guess he's one season oh, yeah, away yeah. from winning MVP. Yeah, yeah. This is also probably in 2007. Bargnani, I believe, is the 2006 draft. So it's rookie Bargnani and it's Dirk MVP. So there you have it. He's going to be the next Dirk, bub. <laughs> Hope he doesn't blow it in the first round to the Warriors. <laughs> like Dirk did this year. It's 2007. Uh, imagine Wolverine being really into basketball. Imagine Wolverine being into any sport or like yeah, anything. I mean, it is. That's the other thing is like, I feel like if Wolverine was like into any sport, his like favorite athlete would be a football player who like wore one of those leather caps. <laughs> or like a hockey defenseman. Yeah, or or like a rugby player or something. He's exactly the kind of guy who would be like, I love that rugby, they don't wear pads. Yeah, Aussie rules. <laughs> uh, he's the best there is at what he does, and what he does is root for an get unknown the scrum. hockey team. <laughs> get, get in the scrum. Uh, uh, <laughs> so... So, so yeah, this, I, I don't, yeah, I know that ever, he, sorry. Do you ever think about how we're about to read 20 more issues of this? 20 more issues? No, no only 17. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I was about to say, I do know that like he does another like pretty big like long kind of saga like this so i think we're only actually in for like three more story arcs sure maybe only two um 
and I know that kind of like House of M Fallout, which we never really even explained the House of M stuff, but House sure. of M Fallout continues to be kind of like a driving sort of like story hook. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's very weird because his run does produce a lot of like ideas and characters and concepts that have like a lot of staying power and continue to be relevant for like quite a few years after he's off the book and even up to now, um, and serve as the basis for stories that other creators like tell or, or do. And a lot of which are like very well received, but his run is seen as like kind of middling at best and, and it's just like so often forgotten, even though it like, like Vulcan is kind of a big deal in sort of like the cosmic picture for a while. Um, and still sort of like comes up a fair bit and he'll introduce some other like ideas and characters in this second chunk of issues that are likewise, you know, consequential for at least a little while. But like, I can't remember the last time I saw someone reference this run in any way, positive or negative. <laughs> right. It does. It, it It's not quite Swamp, even Swamp Thing. It's like Swamp Thing is like, A, this is just bad. And also B, it's like we can see the DNA of like what the creator is sort of starting to take shape. Mm-hmm. But I feel like this is so far afield of like what we're event because, you know, I think what sort of drew you to this mini series is like we're going to dig into a bunch of like noir stuff and a bunch of like crime sort of stories. Yeah. It's basically I, like apex of his powers as a, a superhero storyteller. And then how he leverages that to become like kind of the first indie sensation of the, uh, of like a certain era of indie sensations. And so right. I, I wanted to start after captain America because it's like he, at that point that like, that's how he made his name. And that's kind of like the climax of sort of the first act of his, not even the first act, but like sort of the first half of his career at this point. Um, but, but this is just like so weirdly emblematic (laughs) of like, this feels like it should be like the last superhero comic he wrote before going indie. And like, he decided to go (laughs) indie because he wrote this and was like, I'm so done with like writing stories like this. I just want to be able to do like whatever I want. (laughs) Right. And I imagine it's like roughly contemporaneously with this is like, he's working on daredevil and, yeah, I, I assume like he starts Daredevil the same year and, and I think uh, Iron Fist the same year as well, which I'm now like going to go back to the schedule and look and maybe just decide that we will read it anyways because it's so good. <laughs> sure. I know you love Iron Fist and I remember reading Iron Fist and really liking it too. So, But I imagine Daredevil is much more in line both with what he goes on to do and with his, like, his own personal sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And so it's weird to just like jump in here and be like, you're st- probably the worst thing we will read in this series of episodes yeah i have to uh i have to believe so um but but yeah it is like i mean he talked a lot about how like with sleeper like darwin cook wrote him a letter to basically say like this would be a great crime comic if if it didn't have all this like superhero stuff in it. And I'm sure he probably felt that about a lot of like the Gotham central stuff too. And there's certainly like a heavy crime influence in daredevil, 
both in his run and in Bendis's preceding it. So like that really just sort of continues. Um, and then, yeah. And then before long, we'll be talking about criminal, which he also launches in 2006. Like he does so much stuff that starts. This is the other weird thing about it is like, he's made his name with captain America. And then in 2006, he starts like five new series. (laughs) Um, and most of them hit. But the first one that he does after Captain America is like a big sort of swing and a miss. And then everything else he does, he seems way more enthusiastic about. And it's a lot better and a lot better received. Right. Yeah. But uh, we shall press on. <laughs> Indeed. We shall continue talking about X-Men next episode. Uh, yeah. We'll be talking about, I, I should say we covered Uncanny X-Men number 475. <laughs> to 486 i guess you can see it in the episode title um mm-hmm. and next week we'll be covering x uncanny x-men number 487 to 503 i'm interested to see like where the sort of like his what story threads he wants to like pick up from here i guess is what i'm interested mm-hmm. in seeing whether like we well, go in a totally different direction whether yeah. we keep with some of it i imagine My- professor x will be involved <laughs> yeah my guess is that most of it like nothing <laughs> right. like i think i think there is like a romance or a romantic attempt in the offing for like warpath and hepzibah and i think like professor x will be back around but other than that like the characters who kind of got the most face time in this arc have now been like written out to be right. dealt with in another series and right. it's like and now back to earth with like the most recognizable X-Men who have not appeared in an issue in like eight issues. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I will do a quick, a quick sales note, uh, no awards nominations that reference X-Men shocker, but um, so deadly Genesis number one um, makes a pretty big splash when it comes out, it hits uh, just under 98,000 issues sold and is the number six comic for that month beats out uncanny X-Men by a clean, 15,000 issues by the time it wraps up it is down to 77,000 so a couple thousand behind uncanny x-men and clocking in at number 19 on the month so you know it loses some steam for sure but that is perfectly normal um uncanny x-men number 474 is the last issue that chris claremont wrote that clocks in at number 23 with 78,000 issues sold. Brubaker's get first Jim Carrey issue. On the horn. What? I think someone get Jim Carrey on the horn. Mm-hmm. Brubaker's first issue uh, is 475 or 6? 5. 475. Five. Um, and it goes up to 103,000, just under 104,000. So a big sales spike there, although that's not enough to crack the top 10 in that month, which is doing gangbusters because civil war is in full swing. 52 is in full swing. Um, and Wolverine origins has just started coming out at that point. So there's that question answered. Um, by the time we get to the last issue of rise and fall of the Shi'ar empire, where you at uncanny? It is at number 21, selling just under 82,000 issues. So again, 20,000 issue drop off, but it's still above Claremont numbers um, 
in terms of like kind of the latter part of his run. And it's still kind of one of the top books. It's the funny thing with X-Men is like, it's never going to do bad. Um, right. But Captain America number 26 is doing 126,000 this month. Cause we are well into the like big death of Captain America storyline. And he's kind of climaxing as far as that, uh, that all goes. Um, He's actually got a couple of Captain America books out that month and they together almost hit 400,000. So that gives you a sense of <laughs> where where he's at vis-a-vis that. But uh, but yeah, like I mean the X-Men diehards will always read X-Men. And it's like yeah, it's just a confusing number to look at cuz I think it does sort of convey that like people aren't like obsessed with this but it's not there's nothing about it that's like so offensive that nobody's buying it but also astonishing x-men is outselling it by like forty thousand units right yeah i mean that's kind of how i feel about it it's like this is fine but it's like that's what i want to do with my time (laughs) and and money you know for (laughs) x-men readers the answer is yes and like I'm sure like, you know, there's plenty of stuff I've, I've never really fallen into it with superhero comics where it's like, I'll always buy this title no matter what I, you know, I'd say like, I'm kind of there for like MCU movies basically where it's like at this point, like I don't love and thunder. (laughs) Yeah. Like I'm going to see the movie and like, there's a certain, there's some level at which I'm kind of like, I don't really care if it's like that good or not because there's sort of like a baseline level of enjoyment that I get from like any MCU movie that is like worth the price of a movie ticket. So, so like, you know, I, I get why like people would continue to sort of like invest in this story, even if they're just sort of like, I'm not that interested in this because sometimes just like watching the development of the team and watching sort of like its place in the industry is like part of the fun. Sure. So well, I get it, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's probably more fun to read at the time than it is now. Yeah. I mean, um, it's always more fun to read a book like on a monthly basis when yeah. it's current, especially if you're like really active in having those like, you know, water cooler type discussions at the comic shop or on a forum or whatever. Yeah. Well, thank you all for listening. As I said, we'll be back doing more X-Men next week. Until then, please rate, review, subscribe. Give us two stars. Uh, got the runs pod on Twitter. Shout out to Chris Burton. Burton's shout Burton. out uh, for giving us some retweets. <laughs> uh, got the runs pod at gmail.com for any questions or if you're angry at us for something we've done, just leave that in the drafts. Um, <laughs> um, Chris Burton just uh, DM'd me the, the link to the Hobtown website again, and they have updated it to be a town for the a website for the town instead of the school. <laughs> wow. Um. So so, please swing back around. <laughs> the Hobtown website which appears well, to we have heard been like that the municipal com- government was trying to take over this website yeah 
Oh, oh boy. So there's now a bunch of uh, UFO content on here as oh, well. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm going to, we can't talk about this because I you have a heart <laughs> out, but I'm going to be spending quite a bit of time on here this afternoon. This is so good. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of good stuff. Oh my gosh. Just okay. know that there's well, a reference on here to Christ or Buddha, B-O-U-D-D-A. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely go to Gotharad's pod. I'm sure we will tweet that. Or maybe we, I don't know. If, it's the, I mean, I am going to tweet about it. It's the same link, but it's it's new. It's fresh. Oh, I love this. So, so we will definitely tweet that out. So if you do want to see that, we talked about it last week on the Hobtown Mysteries episode. Go listen to that and then go check out this website on the Twitter. Brand Synergy, strong right now. Mm -hmm. um, so go check that stuff out. Uh, high floor, low ceiling coming back probably this week. Uh, Bevy Ooh. Bevy's coming back probably this week. Uh, fall season getting rolling. Are you guys um, going to do hot bevies? Of course. All bevies are on the table. Hot shoddy uh, PSL. Honey, just wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I wait said winter. before, I've determined to not listen until uh -huh. I'm invited to guest, uh -huh. so I can't. Uh -huh. But I'm so sure listen to both great. of those. Follow me at Sea House and Jen on Twitter. Get ready for more X Men next week. But until next time, <laughs> to N E capital X T. <laughs> yep. To okay. be, be continued. continued. X. XOXO. Sure. Runs and runny girl. <laughs> oh. Like XOXO. I've seen my X-Men. Go <laughs> <Good> name. <laughs>